Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two, man will, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with the handmill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are inviting to Kids Church this morning with Emily. So you must always also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Advent is this uh, beautiful time in which we look forward first to the return of Christ. This is where the first Sunday of Advent situates us is not in awaiting the incarnation, which is odd for us to get used to, but in waiting that Christ will return and set things to right. No one knows the time or the day, and it will come like a thief in the night. But that is what we look towards at the beginning of Advent. And it is proper to the Christian story that we do that. It's, it's that, that hope which we so often put off and we get busy in life and we numb ourselves to and that we work for uh, work day long, um, and because we are so far removed from those early teachings, we begin to think that this is not the hope of the Christian life. But it's proper that Advent, one, that we reclaim that hope, that we say that as much as we may do here, as much as we may be here giving in marriage, as, as Jesus says in Matthew, um, we are looking forward to that day when all things will be set right, when the world will be transformed to be as it should be. So often that's not the way in which we are oriented, myself included. And it's this time, too, during Advent where it's hard to get into that phase. And so often, um, because of certain actors or, or media personalities or whatever you want to say, the church has its own shame about talking about the return of Christ. So-and-so will announce, uh, uh, Harold Camping, was that the guy a couple years ago who was like, it's May 23rd. Uh, and I, I mean... In one sense, whenever I look at these people, I think um, I, I try to have graciousness on them and that they're right in that they're trying to bring to attention that our lives should live in accordance to that day that is coming. Part of the problem, though, and I think Jesus in his wisdom prevents us from doing this, is if we knew the day, 
we'd find a way to postpone our activities to that day. Um, maybe I just did my homework assignments the day before they were due, but perhaps that would turn into many of us. If we knew the day, I can be gracious unto May 20, or I can be uh, jealous and hoarding to May 21st, 2019, and then on May 22nd, I need to wake up kind and aware. Um, it remains a mystery, I think, for good reason. But Advent tries to compress us into that time. The second time it sort of tries to push us into is this time in which we um, attempt to, to position ourselves not as a replacement for Israel, but, but narratively to hear the story in a way that says, we too can sit and wait for the hope of Christ to come amongst us. The world wasn't always one with Jesus revealed in it. And so what the church can do during this time is say, how do we look at the faithful teachings of the prophets? How do we look at what Isaiah said? How do we look at what the psalmist proclaimed for us this morning? How do we inhabit those spaces so that we too can at least build some anticipation into our waiting? We used this image last week from the the church calendar, but I think what the church calendar aims to do in that way, as we sort of look in this backwards way, um, is to say that, that we can sit um, in lonely exile the way that Israel did. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel has all these themes from Israel's history, and that we want to, uh, to get the true light of what Christmas means. It's perhaps okay for us to sit still in some waiting together. It's helpful that these two are connected. There's the waiting of the coming day in which Christ will renew all things, and there's the waiting for Christ to come amongst us. It's not things we do well, <laughs> um, but there's this waiting that we are called into during this season. And what happens is, is that we are sort of brought to these places. And the, the thing I try to, to point out is that in Advent, it's, it's this hope from beyond that really comes for us. Um, that this hope is sort of outside of where we are. It's that we have these two, um, just as, as sort of a, a way of thinking about it. In modernism, we had this myth of progress. The world just keeps getting better and better and better. Christians are prone to fall for the myth of progress because we have year zero. Well, there is no year zero. Year one, <laughs> uh, that, that we, in which we can say Christ came and that changed history and things got better from there. This isn't to say that things haven't improved in some very important ways, but Christians don't place their, their hope in the myth of progress, that we're going to keep getting better and better and better. And what happened in the last century with, with two world wars was that was fractured in a lot of ways, particularly the devastation of World War II in the West sort of did that. And this brought about this new sort of school of thought sort of based around postmodernism. And postmodernism says there is no large narrative we can, we can believe in that progress will happen. And so our new response to that isn't hopefulness. I mean, you could say the benefit of, of the modern progress one was there was hopefulness we would get there. What comes with this story that, that this is not maybe true, from the postmodern perspective, is often despair. And so often, I think, when we think about it, we live our lives between hope 
and despair. Not hope in, in the biblical sense in which there is help coming from some other place to set right, but hope in the midst of progress or despair that it has all failed us. We keep hoping that all our problems will be solved by some new piece of technology or medical equipment or something like this. And we're frustrated that progress isn't there yet. And then we default back to despair. We can't trust that this world will work itself out. For the Christian, the place we inhabit is the place of hope. Robust hope that says help doesn't come from human progress. It comes from God coming to us. First in the way, as we said in Advent, Jesus coming to Israel as the Savior who was promised. And second, as we said in that second place, that the Matthew reading that Jamie read for us, that second coming, the day in which all shall be filled. Cornell West has a wonderful line, and I don't think he came up with it either, um, but uh, they asked him once, if it was Rolling Stone, if he was an optimist or a pessimist, and I've, I've said this before, but West said, I am neither an optimist or a pessimist. I am a prisoner of hope. We are tempted towards optimism or pessimism or despair. But what Advent proclaims for us is we are a people of hope. And it's hope of help that comes from outside. So in the Matthew reading that Jamie read for us, it comes in this place in which Jesus comes as a thief in the night. No one can know the day or the time. Therefore, keep watch. Christians live in a time of keeping watch for that day. It doesn't come intrinsically to us, but, but hopefully Advent is a time where we can begin to be reminded of that. We live in a time of keeping watch for that day. We shouldn't surrender that, that thought to the people who, who project end times theology into the news. It's still our thought as well. We are people who are bound up in that keeping watch for Christ to come. The psalm for this morning, Psalm 122, um, has that beautiful phrase on praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And all the nations streaming to that city in the book of Isaiah that uh, Jude read for us. Those two readings paint this picture that, that we can begin to wait in a way that says, there is dissonance with the way the world should be. Peace does not reign on earth. The world in which everybody is streaming to the name of the Lord is not yet. We continue to make more and more weapons of warfare, but what Isaiah pronounces is that that day will come to an end and those things which we have made for war will be turned into instruments of agriculture. I forget who, what was said, but tanks will become John Deere tractors. Um, we have a way in which we don't live in that world yet. And so our waiting has dissonance with the way the world is. The psalmist said, too, is to enter Jerusalem is to enter a whole nother world. It's to enter the place where God resides in peace. Now, for Christians, that place has been shifted to where God resides in Jesus Christ. But in some sense, to enter into that space 
is to enter into a new place of transformation. And so when we see the dissonance, we long, like the psalmist, to have our feet established in that, earth, or in that um, heavenly city, that heavenly place where these things are true even though they aren't now. The psalmist has this way in which we live for God's sake and for the sake of others. And, and it's, um, it's true. Um, even in the dissonance, he believes that this is true and will be true of humanity someday. Isaiah proclaimed that future day for us. And Matthew claimed, stay awake, we do not know the time. Now, last year, several people came to me and they said they like Advent Our Church because I always use the same things. <laughs> and I did not take that as a compliment. <laughs> um, uh, like, I think I'm creative and unique and original. Um, I think that there's truth in being reminded of the same images every Advent. Advent is the church's time in its fullness, I say every year. It's the time in which we await return of Christ. Advent, as Bonhoeffer proclaimed for us, is, is um, like being in a prison cell, which he was in during that time. Advent is this time in which we wait there because we know that hope comes from the outside. You stay awake and alert for that hope. Advent also is this um, place in which we live into the story in which God has given us. But because I was not content to say there's truth and I've been honing these things for years and I think they're good and true and worth being reminded of and of ourselves, I decided this year I'm going to preach Paul's epistles. We'll hit on the other ones, but, but I'd like to focus on what Paul has to say this year. Now, there are four years uh, or three years to the church calendar, A, B, and C. There are four readings in each year, so technically I have 12 years before I'm actually just reciting content, people. Um, give me some credit. Uh, and I've never done the epistles, so I'm excited to sort of dive into them shortly. I don't, I don't want to take up a lot of time, because I think there's a lot of goodness in them if we just hear them. It was Emily who read for us from Romans this morning. And do this understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Put that scripture up for us. Um... Wake up from your slumber because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. First off, I've, a commentator this week made the point that um, Paul has thus declared all Christians are mourning people. Um, it is time for us to wake up. It is time for us to be alert. And this passage read in the Advent season calls for us to take this time to wake up in our present time. The last week, at least for me, was a time of, of enjoyment, a time of celebration with family and friends, and a time in which you can numb yourself to the time that it is, that it is a time to be awake. There was so much good with family that the message that I was to wake from my slumber was not welcome yet. But here, on the first Sunday of Advent, Paul reminds us that do this understanding the present time we are in today. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. And we are to wake up because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. 
Now that's a hard truth to jump into. When I first believed, I was met by Jesus Christ in a way that was more tangible, that drew me more into life. Since then, my senses have grown numb often, and I've retreated from that good news on that day. And yet Paul is reminding the Roman Christians that when that you felt that hour you first believe is actually nearer to you now than it was then. Rise from your slumber. This next phrase, which I just think is this amazing sort of way in which it places Christians on this interesting, it places us on the line. Night is nearly over, the day is almost here. We are not a people of night. We are the ones who see that the night is nearly over. The times in which we plan for war, in which peace is not true on earth, the time in which we continue that is nearly over. But Paul does not say the day is here. He doesn't tell us that we just um, can live naively about what's about to happen. He says the day is almost here. And so Christians live as those people caught between these two poles. We know that there is night. We are to rise from the slumber of the night, and the day is almost here. The day we get a glimpse of in the reading from Isaiah, the reading from the Psalms, but it is not yet fully here. We await that thief in the night in which Christ will come and set things to right. There's lots of contrasts in this passage. Um, the night is nearly almost. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. I like that way Paul phrases it there because one, it's, uh, I don't like using Advent as a time to do lots of things. I often find in my own experience at churches as Christmas got closer, I was getting busier, my family was getting busier, and the church just wanted me to be busier as well. So intentionally here, we try to make this a respite from the calls to be busy. But in Paul's imagery, we all get dressed every day. So he's not asking for much. He's saying, take off the deeds of darkness. Remove those things from yourself and from your life, from what you're wearing. And again, we don't just go out naked. We put on the armor of light. And Paul, is, is he saying that the night is almost over, the day is almost here, calls people into putting on military garb. Put on the armor of light. Now, Paul will later say our battle is not with flesh and blood, with principalities and powers, those things which destroy the world. And the armor which he describes in other letters is not armor of violence, but armor of sort of witness to what God has done. But at least he's saying that we, in between the night and the day, enter into a zone of conflict. My sister liked watching college football continuously this past week. This is not about college football as a zone of conflict. It's about um, the ways in which we're bombarded during this season with all sorts of things to buy and to do and to be. All these ways in which we're supposed to be heightened in tension. 
I just got an email for a webinar on um, how to have peaceful conversation with your family about politics um, around the holidays. And my solution was, there's no talk about being a person of peace. Going as uh, David and Kim were talking about a non-anxious presence this morning, going as a non-anxious presence, being a person of peace. Like having the equipment to beat up your family peacefully about whatever your political views is not really the point. Um, it's to be that person who brings peace into those situations. Because we all know hundreds of people who have the testimony, if I changed my mind something crucially at Thanksgiving dinner, it's not the way it works. So we have this time to put on that armor, to go into conflict, but to go as people who know how the story turns out. So pastor in Harlem, uh, I read about this week, who established a center to, to sort of read and learn, and somebody from the news media said, that's great, you're teaching, what, 10, 15 kids to learn, but what difference will it make? And the pastor um, uh, said, we can do this because we know how it ends. We don't go out as losers in our army of light. We don't go out in an entirely defensive position either. We go out as we put this on as people who know how the story ends. And that frees us. Now, one of the main themes of Paul's letter is you're not going to earn your salvation. Romans 1 through 11 is a lot about how that God who is making salvation called into things that weren't and has made them present in the world. That there is no tie, whether you are Jew or Gentile or anything else like that, to say that you are genius and you have found salvation. Many of us know times when we've forgotten this, when Christians have forgotten this, but Paul is quite clear throughout the book of Romans that it's only an invitation to narcissism to think you came up with Jesus or found him yourself, but that God has made this thing in the world out of nothing. But with 12, through the end of it, are about are how we live as Christians. And even here, he's making it clear that we're not the ones who bring this about. So too in the way that we don't earn our salvation, so too we don't make the world anew. That God has invited us in to clothe ourselves in this way is not to be the people who make daybreak come. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor in sexual morality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Let us take these things off this Advent season. Now, this is partially what he's dealing with specifically in the book of Romans, but you could add your own list of things we might be needing to take off as we approach and look at the, in living in that spot between the day is, is almost here and the night is nearly over. My own life, pray about that, you think about that, you come up with the things in which you might take off to prepare yourself for the coming day. Now, I, don't, I didn't bring one of those prayer books we had last week up here, but they should be available in the back again. Um, but one of the ways I think in which we might be people who begin to put on something new is by praying the Psalms in the morning or in the evening or framing our day in such a way that we're putting on something different as we go about, going out into the day. Paul then comes back to the dressing language. 
Rather, clothe yourself with Jesus Christ. How do we clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ this Advent season? Because we know the fullness of the day in which he is going to bring. Again, I like these imageries because it's about clothing ourselves. Paul doesn't have, here is a 12-step process. That's not picking on the right thing, sorry. 42-step process for you to set your world in order. He talks about clothing yourself in something that's outside of you so that you can live in that way. Put on this, not that. Now, um, Kelly and I have talked about this. I don't know how to tell this story. Give me some grace as I tell this story. A comedian um, was talking about how him and his buddies, not a Christian comedian, um, uh, would see women walking, and they uh, would often dress, be dressed provocatively, and his friends would make catcalls. He said, that's not an appropriate thing to do. Just because a woman's dressed a certain way doesn't mean you get to treat him a certain way. But, because he's a comedian, see, there was no joke there. He raised the question of, why would you wear the uniform of somebody who does want the cat calls? Again, never appropriate to treat somebody that way. So that's, that's the joke. And he says, it would be like if I were wearing a police uniform, somebody come up to me and said, hey, can you break up this fight? And I was saying, why would you ask me to do that. See, I don't want that joke or that story to be about how women dress. What I want that joke or story to be about is how as Christians we might ask what uniform, what armor, what thing we're wearing in the world? What am I listening to? What am I consuming? And that that goes from not just media, but to drink and smoke and everything else. You know, um, to have people in this valley, some of them I know are Christians, who smoke weed all the time, and then to say, oh, you're a stoner. I'm not a stoner. How would you say that? Because you're wearing the uniform of one. Paul's question is, how do we clothe ourselves in Christ so that that shows forth for us? That's a hard message for me. What am I putting on, watching, consuming, wearing, going out about? And so people don't go, oh, you're one of those people. I mean, there are, there's, there's a host of pastors who say, you're one of those cool pastors who drink beer, and they think it's a compliment. There's nothing interesting about that. There's no compliment in being the cool Christian. There's no compliment in being the legalistic jerk Christian either. Don't get me wrong. Um, But so often we make our standards of how we might be Christians in the world more amenable to being accepted. And I'm not sure that's always right. I'm not sure that's the best place for us to be. How do we clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ? How do we rise from our slumber? There's one last thing I wanted to say this morning. It's a story of uh, uh, St. Augustine, uh, 400 A.D. Um, He's a sex addict. Um, I was reading this on my infusion day at the hospital, and they were like, the confessions, what's that about? And I'm like, 
about a sex addict who's trying to make himself great in the world and he has to let it all go and become a Christian. And they're like, that sounds interesting. And I was like, well, it's from 400 AD, so it's, it's a classic. Um, but Augustine is struggling with becoming a Christian. Now, what happens, if you read it too fast, you miss this. In Book 7, Augustine says, All my concerns about whether Christianity is correct have been alleviated. He's gotten the answer to where evil comes from in his mind. He's gotten the answer to um, um, why Christianity, Jesus can become incarnate. Um, That was one of his things. Anyways, he's got all these problems that he finally sort of philosophically solves in book seven. And you would think book eight would be the tale of him going forth and telling people his grand testimony on how he had worked it out. But book eight is actually the story of agony for Augustine because he then has to say, if this is true... I have to let go of my desire to be famous. I have to let go of my desire to have my own wife and my own uh, harem and my own people to sort of have sex with, that this is his way of saying, I need to leave that behind. And what happens at the end of the book, and this is connected to our readings this morning, he said, I was, went out talking like this and weeping in the intense bitterness of my broken heart. Suddenly I heard a voice from a house nearby, perhaps a voice of some boy or girl I don't know, singing over and over again, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. My expression immediately altered, and I began to think hard whether children ordinarily repeated a ditty like this in any sort of game, but I could not recall ever hearing it before. I stemmed the flood of cheers and rose to my feet believing that this could be none other than a divine counsel to open the book and read the first passage I chanced upon. For I had heard the story of how Antony had been instructed by a gospel text. He happened to arrive while the gospel was being read and took the words to be addressed to himself when he heard, Go and sell all your positions and give the money to the poor, and you will receive treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. So he was promptly converted by you by this plainly divine message. Stung into action, I returned to the place where Alpheus, his friend, was sitting. For on leaving it, I had put down there the book of the apostles' letters. I snatched it up and opened it and read in silence upon which, uh, the passage upon which my eyes first enlightened, which is the one we read today. Not in dispossession and drunkenness, nor in debauchery or in lewdness, nor in arguing and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh or the gratifications of your desires. I had wish to read, I had no wish to read further, nor was there a need. No sooner than I had reached the end of the verse than the light of certainty fluttered my, flooded my heart, and all the dark shades of doubt fled away. For Augustine, the solution was to hear those words, which we've heard this morning on this Advent Sunday. The rides reads them, and there's no re- need to read further, for the light of certainty had flooded his heart. He goes forward to battle with those demons we talked about some. But he knew then that it was time to take off the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Let us pray. 
you have prepared for us this Advent season where we, like Israel, can sit and wait and see that the world is not as it should be. In so many ways, it seems like darkness might be the rule of the land. And yet your son has come. Your son has instructed us that as the light began to dawn in his coming, so too we shall wait for that day when he shall return. We are a people who can wait in the virtues and the gifts and the lifestyle that he guided us into at that time between when the night is over and the day has come. <clears throat> 